This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host, David Holloway, and I'm absolutely pumped to be here with you. And I have with me the brilliant Mr. Paul Bindig again. How are you, Paul? I'm thrilled to be here with you again, David. Yeah, so we're here for part two of our interview with Bobby Cressy. For those of you that listened to part one, you heard all about Bobby's great career as an organist with the San Diego Padres baseball team. Uh, In this second part, we delve a lot deeper into the other aspects of Bobby's career. So whether that be jazz, ska, his approach to playing, he tags an interesting couple of keyboard players. He has some nice tips for keyboard players. It's generally a great interview. So I hope you enjoy this part too. So, so Bobby, we, we know you as the as the organ player for the San Diego Padres, but there's a lot more to your musicianship than just that. And I'd love to ask you, and and mainly because I want to direct our listeners and viewers to this about your recent-ish project, Kelly Native, which is a a very cool funky uh, uh, organ jazz um, combo, which I, which I believe you put together with a bunch of the uh, the the best musicians going around in in San Diego. Can you uh, can you give us some insight to how that all came together and and what the pro- what that process was like? Yes, yes. Uh, I appreciate you asking me about that. Um, yeah, there came a point where, well, I've settled into my career in San Diego, and it's a balance of the 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 sports organist thing, which is really ten to twenty percent of what I do, if that. But I'm well known for it, and that's fine. But hey, there's another 80% of what I do. And that that 80%, a huge chunk of it is playing in loads of top 40 bands. Actually, just one top 40 band in San Diego. Kind of the best one in town, in my opinion. It keeps us very busy. There's a lot of that kind of work around here because there's loads of conventions. Uh, And these are some of my great musical friends in San Diego. And then when I'm not doing those top 40 gigs, I'll try to fit in jazz gigs wherever I can. And I've been back down here uh, since 2010, like I said. So we've been 12 years and uh, met a lot of great musicians along the way. And so I love playing jazz when I get to down here. Um, I consider myself a jazz musician. Um, And uh, so there came a point where I had all these wonderful players that I played with in these different circles. Um, And I played loads of different things over the years, reggae. um, I like to play funky music. I like to play all kinds of music. When I aspired to be a professional musician, very early on, I said, I fell in love with the notion of being a studio musician. And uh, when I discovered the band Toto 
And I swear I'm coming back to Cali Native with all this, but this is how it, it came about. Um, when I discovered kind of what Toto was all about, I remember when I first, uh, my friend who was in his reggae band with me at the time was like, he was just, a, he's a drummer and he was just a huge Steve Picaro nut, uh, uh, Jeff Picaro nut. And, um, and he's like, dude, you have to listen to Toto. You have to listen to Toto. And I remember we were on tour. We were actually in uh, New Zealand and uh, playing a reggae festival. And I remember in the, the airport, they had a best of Toto CD and I bought it and I had my Discman. This is 2003 or four probably. And uh, so I listened to Toto. It was this best of album. And I listened to it in those headphones and that head and that airplane ride. And I will never forget that experience because it was just all the great hits of theirs. And uh, it like, it shook me. It was like everything I wanted uh, just listening to those those keyboard solos and just how slick all the production was and the grooves and uh and my friend was right there an expert on all of it and he was able to i'd look over and be like dude this song i would tell him kind of what some of the lyrics he's like oh yeah that's georgie porgy what do you do whatever oh yeah that's you know that's africa or whatever and so uh from then on it, it was a period of my life where i was seriously thinking about okay i really want to be a professional musician and i love the idea of I love the idea of these monster players that don't show that they're monsters unless they need to. I kind of like the idea of just being able to do anything and the idea of being able to play something dead simple, but play it perfectly and to be just the right thing for that situation. And um, so that kind of led to me playing over the years, just trying to get proficient in many different styles and doing gigs in many different styles. I played a lot of reggae and ska over the years, uh, but then also being able to play R&B, neo soul, um, and then straight ahead jazz. Um, and then also playing in church. I've, I played in church. Like I said, my parents were my first uh, playing in Catholic church, kind of figuring out, okay, how does Toto Square play like very square and white, but in a good way. And to, to sort through what all of these things meant and so that people could call on me for different things. So that's led to me being able to play a lot of different styles and pursue that ability as a player. And uh, there came a point. So I've done that. And my current top 40 band, you know, you play in a good top 40 band, you get to put all of that to work. You get to play all of those different styles. And um, it, that work can be a bit gratifying because of that. Some people, they really frown on that kind of work. And I get that it can be soul sucking, but it, at its best, it's pretty cool to be able to nail an Earth, Wind & Fire tune and then nail a Johnny Cash tune back to back, you know? So anyway, around 2017, I really got the urge. I was like, man, I know so many great musicians in this town. And they don't always play in the same circles with one another. I'll encounter this guy on this kind of gig. I might play with these younger cats. Part of it was generational. In my top 40 band, there's some great musicians that are older. And then in some of the jazz scene, there's some younger people and they never get to play with each other. But I knew I'm like, I could see these two working really well together. Uh, so I kind of approached it with this concept of like, you know, let me write a few tunes to bring some of my favorite musicians together. And that gave me the, the direction, uh, the concept. And then I had to further refine it by saying, well, how the hell I could write tunes in any style. What am I going to do? And then I settled on, well, I don't want to do a straight ahead jazz album, like just piano trio, piano quartet. I could, but that would be leaving some of the things that I love on the table because um, I like to play funky pocket based music as well. 
So it ended up me thinking, okay, how about a funky organ album? And I'm a piano player much more than an organ player. And my organ chops, especially my, and I know I'm a stadium organist and all this, but um, I never had training on the pedals. Um, I'm no Jim Alfredson when it comes to having Hammond in my blood growing up. I had to figure out what the hell all of it was about, like much later in life, sadly. So, but I got to the point where it's like, oh, I can walk a bass line and I can play a funky ostinato and, and comp a bit and write some more funky tunes that aren't dead hard, you know, and, um, and I'll have really good players around me. <laughs> and so that's what I ended up doing. And so I wrote eight tunes in eight different styles and I had all of my favorite musicians in San Diego feature on different ones in ways that I knew would be good for them. Um, so there's a couple, I won't go through every tune, but there's, um, there's some really funky uh, drummers in town. There's a couple guys, their name's Jake Nager, Zach Nager. They're both drummers. And Zach Nager played with the Grey Boy All-Stars. He's like a an encyclopedia of funk grooves. So I, I wrote a funk tune for Zach to play on. But then this percussionist that Zach never gets to play with, he's a percussionist, very versatile A-list cat who played with um, Luis Miguel, who's like a world-famous Mexican pop star. It's like he'll be able to play on that funk groove and it might be a treat for Zach. He never gets to play with this percussionist. And then this guitarist who I had just started playing with that, that year in a um, jazz crusaders concert that we did. I said, man, you would be great on this tune. So I started assembling it and then these a jazz horn section, but with voicings that were not full jazz, but not full funk. So every tune came about with me combining players and I knew it would the way I thought would work well, and it did work well. And then I had my drummer in my top 40 band. He's huge, rudimental drummer, uh, came out of the military, but also happens to be a total badass of all things Latin music, uh, Cuban music. He played with Celia Cruz. So he has an interesting bag of style. So I got to write a Tower of Power style tune with him on drums. And then I got to write a cha-cha where he got to play drums. And then I brought in some of the Latin jazz guys in town. So the whole album kind of proceeded like that. And I ended up, the danger with it would be, would this will this be remotely cohesive? I have a reggae tune with one of my favorite reggae drummers on the same as like a t an album where I have a cha-cha, I have a fusion tune. And amazingly, in my opinion, it does work. Um, it does. Maybe because, okay, so I... Maybe I, I could ask you why you think it works, but I think it works because I, by and large, most of the musicians, the horn section is mostly the same. The concept is funky organ and horns, and it's mostly it's a five or six piece horn section on every tune recorded in two days in the same studio. And I think that helped with the sound and the overall. And, and I wrote all those tunes for the most part. I wrote them all in the same month and a half you know there's one tune that was like 10 years old that i brought in and uh reworked but mostly it was all kind of from my brain at the same time so i think all of those things help to make it kind of a cohesive listen yeah it feels totally like a cohesive listen i've listened to it a number of times and particularly a couple of the songs I have on a playlist it, it, it just yeah hangs together really well because of that consistency with the horns and and the overall approach yeah really good stuff and we'll absolutely link to that in the show notes it's it's well worth a listen 
And from I don't I don't know whether it's one extreme to the other with jazz and ska, but certainly the the tell us a bit about the Western Standard uh, Time ska orchestra because I, I I only discovered that in the last two days doing research for this interview and oh. I love it to bits. Like it's just I it's on one of my key playlists now. It's just brilliant. But talk a little bit more about that the approach and and why that came together. Yeah, well, that is an interesting project. Uh, my first experience. Uh, very formative experience for me was uh, in high school. My first job, real job, was in a music store, a music store that sells instruments, a mom and pop one at that, not a guitar center. But it was music retail in the 90s, back when you could have such a thing. You know, it's much harder to try and do that now. But they were selling instruments and they sold loads of sheet music. And I got a job there when I was 16. And uh, what a great thing for me, because there was loads of teachers there much older than me. I learned a lot about music. Um, from these people who have since gone on. Many people that taught there have gone on. Now they play in, you know, their first call session musicians in LA, or they're still teaching there, but I just learned loads. I was able to pick these brains of all these musicians at this music store I worked at. Uh, but uh, one, a guy who started there at the same time, he was eight years older than me. Um, he's one of my best friends. And um, he, uh, he played loads of what's called traditional ska. And that's uh, Jamaican, like the ska of the 60s. There's a band called the Scottalites. And they were the initial um, musicians who took, it was really their adaptation of R&B coming over from New Orleans over the ocean. The, the radio that they would get, they would get R&B rhythms. And it was kind of their interpretation of that, their own homespun version. It evolved into the traditional ska groove. And uh, they were, but they were jazz musicians. They were all from the same boys' school in Jamaica, and the band was called the Scottlights. And they would be writing contrafacts. They would be taking uh, tune like chord progressions, simple jazz chord progressions, and writing their own heads on them, and changing the names. And uh, that's traditional ska. That eventually slowed down into rock steady in the late sixties, and then became religious with. Um, reggae became reggae but the roots of it are ska and uh he was huge into it and he was eight years older than me and he's needed a piano player for his various aspirations and projects and he saw me as like uh you know a young guy i'm sure very very green but maybe malleable enough to like hey if you got a little bit of ska he kind of plays jazz and he's a kid so he'll you know he'll do whatever you know uh so uh we started this band called Full Spectrum, which was like a ska jazz band. This is the early 2000s. And I was 18, 19 years old. And we recorded a couple albums. And it was cool. Um, it was jazz and ska. Kind of ska had always been jazzy. But this is where, in, in a different way, they'd have simple chord progressions, but they take solos. Well, now we were making the chords a bit thicker. And that hadn't really been done. And so we were taking tunes like Red Clay and playing them in a jazz style. Um, and so I, I had a couple of years of doing that with this band full spectrum. It was a pretty horrible band to watch live though, even though there'd be like pretty good musicians in it. It was like kind of the worst of both worlds in terms of presentation, uh, where you had like jazz musicians with no visual energy. Uh, but the music was a little bit less boring than jazz or a little bit more boring in a sense. And we were playing venues that weren't jazz venues. So it'd be like at a bar, but we're playing ska jazz. So that band didn't really go anywhere, but it did set this, the ground for what became Western Standard Time, where uh, 
my friend Aton, it's more his vision. It's definitely more his vision than mine. But since I was his piano player, I was in on the ground floor of it where it's like, okay, well, let's take Scott and let's make it a big band. And so we're not going to have just like two, three horns. We're going to have really good arrangements, uh, a big band. So we can kick ass in that sense. And a big band has more of a visual impact right away. And also will involve some of the best singers in the ska scene who have loads of energy. Um, and these are guys like there's a guy named Jesse from the Agri lights. It's a very famous ska band. And then there's um, Greg Lee from a band called Hepcat. That's another famous uh, ska band. And those guys can really perform. And so that allowed the musicians to just, you know, play the charts. And uh, it. we also got our look together a bit more. And so that's what happened. Uh, it, it was 2011, I think, where we recorded our first album. And a really good friend of ours who from the music store, his name was Benny, Benny Golbin. And he... It was a had a pretty brilliant ear. Uh, he um, did all these incredible arrangements. Sadly, Benny passed away a few years ago in a car accident, but he did these incredible arrangements for the first couple of Western Standard Time albums. And uh, it was a lot of fun um, to, and we were all a bit more mature, you know? It's like, I think we understood what had, didn't work with that initial go around with the small band and we made it better for this. And so it was a ass kicking big band sound, but uh, with ska, which hadn't really been done before, I don't think. Now, there's a band called Tokyo Ska Paradise Orchestra, which did something cool like that. But this was its own thing. And there's a lot of heavy names in this big band. And um, so the project continues to this day. Yeah, I was going to say, and uh, not, not that Spotify should ever be a barometer of success for any musician, but it's obvious that you've got a following there because looking at the stream numbers on on that those albums, they're pretty significant. Yeah, yeah. There's an international scene for ska for sure. As uh, music, it's a, it, it's a strange scene. Like, well, lots of things have this. There's like a scene for everything, man. And you may not know about it as a musician. You, may, I've, I'm always finding this in San Diego. Like, I'll play years gigs with certain people, and then maybe one day I'll meet someone and find out there's this whole other scene of musicians, the people that I don't know about, doing their thing. Uh, certainly, ska has its own. There's people who are hardcore about it and they dress like the mods. And there was this whole sky in the in the UK in the 70s and 80s. And so some of that fashion is is part of it as well. And so this band does very well with, with those crowds. Now, I'll be honest, I don't want to take more credit than I should for Western Standard Time. I'm on the albums and I'm certainly Dayton, he was in my wedding. He's one of my great friends, longtime friends. But I don't make all of those gigs now um, for lots of different reasons. Uh, sometimes I have to do my wedding gigs that pay five times as much um, or, you know, they'll be going on tour and it makes more sense to pick up musicians where they're going instead. But uh, I do love playing that music. And uh, it's a thrill, man. When we have all of the best players doing it, it's really cool to be like, hey, man, like, it's cool that this is one of one thing in my toolkit. Not everybody can do this. I, it's not that hard to me, but just knowing what's appropriate and what not and how jazzy to make it. It's like there's a certain recipe that not everybody can do. So it's kind of satisfying. Like, man, this is really this is really grooving, you know. So it's fun to have that project for sure. Oh yeah, it must it must add so much. Uh, just the diversity of it w with everything else you're doing, but also playing with killer musicians and, and working on something that you know is is it is it sounds good and is striking a chord with people it's got to be it's got to be uplifting right it is especially for me you know i don't i don't know what kind of gigs you guys do day in day out um 
with with music and that but what i've when i say i've really fallen into the top 40 scene um i play so many weddings and corporate events and it's very easy to like get burned out with there's lots of aspects of that that are wonderful and there's a lot that can really burn you out but one of the things that you really miss that sometimes you don't realize until you do a gig like a western standard time is when the audience is there to see you <laughs> and they're they're there to watch you perform and enjoy you as like uh as an artist so it's amazing you can play so much music music uh and make a career doing it but not get to experience that visceral thrill of connecting with an audience who's there to hear your stuff you know so it's a good dose of that and to, to get to go play in a bar where there's young sexy people drinking and it's funny it sounds like a that might sound very silly for me to say that but I, I swear to you it's a very real thing to be to play for an energetic audience like that as opposed to just a bunch of I don't want to say geezers but or I don't want to say wallpaper, but it can be wallpaper at its worst, but just where you're, you're not the main attraction or you're really just fully, you're a commodity, you know, you're a business, you know, doing these top 40 gigs. And, and, uh, so it's nice to, it fills that cup, you know, and yeah, the baseball yeah. games, that that's a different, the baseball organ thing that fills, that doesn't a hundred percent scratch that edge either. That's a whole different thing as well. Yeah. And that's fun. But to actually get to connect with an audience, with a cool band yeah there's nothing like it you know well and i think on that somewhat philosophical note this is a great time for me to ask you one of the questions that we, that we love to ask all our guests bobby which is what are some lessons you would pass on to other keyboard players you know no matter what they're doing but based on what you've learned over the journey with the diverse music you've played and, and are still playing well i don't know if i'm in a position to give advice to anyone but uh i've i've found that you've got to balance making a career with uh staying sane and um also that there's different seasons to to different parts of your career and uh it's like you've got to you've got to balance this is not new information but you have to balance your making money uh, and selling your soul with having fun and saying yes to things that you know are going to satisfy your soul and uh, and scratch a different kind of itch. So, uh, and if it gets out of whack, you can find yourself either poor or burned out. Um, but and also, but also that uh, sometimes you may go through seasons where you're just not in the mood for something as much. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it's like the end of the world. Um, uh, and sometimes that's just beyond you. Um, I guess to zoom out and have a bigger picture I've, I've found, um, like you may, and also ways you also want to try and find ways to keep it interesting. So like I might do, a have a, have a, I might have a $600 wedding gig. Okay. Great paying gig. And then the next day, I might have been asked to do a $100 bar gig, like a duo thing. And uh, I might have said yes at the time. And then I might have been just like leading up to it being like, why the hell did I say yes to that stupid $100 gig? And really kind of have it bum me out during the day because then it's like, oh, of course, if 
now my wife wants to do something and now she's vibing me for not being able to hang with her on this Sunday night when I'm going to go do this duo gig or something. And then I'll work it up to the point where I'm really not looking forward to this gig. Dang it. And you're just hoping it gets canceled or something. Those gigs always end up being the ones that are really fun. <laughs> the more I dread a gig or I'm just not looking forward to it, it like ends up being fun. And I'll always rediscover something that makes it fun about it and, and makes it like affirming for myself. Like we have loads of fun singing a goofy tune or, or trying something that the singer's never done before. Oh, they've never sung uh, this Michael Jackson tune. And it would be silly to just play it on a piano and have a singer sing it. But that's why we should do it. And then it goes great. And we might F up a little bit, but then we had so much fun doing it. It's like that was maybe the highlight of my life, my musical week, you know? So I guess... It's like that's balancing out, you know, trying new things and never, never getting stale. Um, finding new ways to challenge yourself and make old things new. Um, if you're in a situation where you're find yourself doing the same things over and over, I've just with the top 40 gigs that I do, um, like they can get quite stale, but. Recently, I've started, I've, I've been trying to find new ways, whether it's with constantly tweaking patches or trying to add, maybe I could add this element to the way I play it. Um, also, I've recently started recording our sets as well, and that's put me on edge in a good way. And now it's like even the most inane tune that we're playing, the most simple thing, I find myself concentrating more because I'm trying to just, now I'm pretending that I'm in the studio and like, okay, this C major triad that I have to play on this downbeat it's going to feel perfect because I'm putting way more mental energy into I'm listening to the drummer and listening to the bass player. I'm just going to put it in the perfect place in the beat. This fill that I'm going to play, it's going to be a perfect fill. It's going to be three notes. It's not going to be seven notes because I'm in a fuck it attitude or no, it's going to be, I'm going to play the perfect studio fill. I'm going to be just like, gosh, like Greg filling gains playing the perfect thing. And so recording myself has have introduced this, uh, this accountability and put me on edge all of a sudden i'm enjoying the gigs way more again so i found a way to make them new so and challenge myself so i think that if you can always mix mix that in mix in something new mix in unexpected gigs the chewing gum will never lose its flavor awesome yeah and, and i think that what comes through for me listening to your talk it's bringing that passion to what you do so uh, th thank you for sharing that uh, bobby uh, another question we love to ask all our guests is do you have a story of a, a technical or musical train wreck that may have happened to you while playing live? What have you got for us? Oh man, I've been fortunate. I've not had too many technical train wrecks. Um, I've had plenty of technical issues, but um, I've resisted. I've still resisted main stage. Um, so when I do these top 40 gigs, I'm still Mr. Rompler. I have a CP4 and then I have a montage so it's like an all Yamaha gig. If I'm fancy, I'll bring my SK2, uh, but uh, for more legit organ sounds. But just with those two, like, I can get the job done. And having those two as opposed to a computer, like they never crash. Um, so I've never, I, I've insulated myself from the real heinous technical stuff uh, by doing that. Although going back to what we just talked about, I actually really want to start exploring my a main stage rig really just to challenge myself. And I listened to your um, Steve Percaro pod recently, and uh, he was talking about how he just used main stage on all those total gigs of the past decade. And uh, I was like, shit, well, if it's good enough for Steve Percaro, <laughs> then it's good enough for me, you know? Um, 
So, but anyway, uh, so technically, you know, it's funny though. One thing that's started happening um, recently on my, my bottom CP4 and I've not had time to, because it's a nagging thing. And then when I fix it, I forget about it till the next time. Every time I, I power it on, the board's transposed up a half step. So yeah, every time. So the little red transpose button will be lit. I don't know what has happened uh, to make that happen. I don't know if it's like something got saved for it to do that, or if there's more of a like glitch and it needs a reset. Um, and it's, it, I could spend 10 minutes to get to the bottom of it. You know, like I'm sure that if I reset it, save my patches and reloaded it, it would be fine. But I'm always forgetting. And it, the second I fix it, I forget about it. So it's had, there's been many times <laughs> where uh, I've started a tune and it's just the hay, most heinous uh, cacophony. And it's, it's, it's almost like a visceral, like uh, almost like pain. Like you got shocked with electricity when you go, because the second you play it, you realize like, oh, and it's humiliating as well, man. Because you, and a lot of times it'll be on sound check. Thank God, sound check and not the actual gig. Uh, but, you know, we like to roll in and it's fun because, like, when we sound check our, my top 40 band's a very efficient sound check uh, band. Like, it's fast. And we always, we, what's a good band. So whenever we sound check in the venue, there's always that moment where you're first making sound that it will turn heads. Like, all of the people working there, the coordinator will be like, damn, this band sounds good. And so the past, <laughs> Over the past couple months, it's happened like 15 times where we I'm like ready, like, yeah, we're gonna show these guys, man. This is a badass. We're gonna launch it this tune. Do but doom drum fill. First note, it's just horrible, crappy, nasty sound. And like I said, I'm jumping, like, oh my god, I can't believe it. And then sure enough, bang, bang. And then the bashful look from me. Sometimes I pretend it wasn't me. I was you know, going to say, at least you're not arguing, because yeah. that happened to me on Saturday night, Bobby, where that happened, and we hadn't had a chance to do sound check, so it was the opening song, but the bass player fell, fell into key with me, so I was arguing with the guitar player that it was him, not me, because me and the bass player were fine, but the bass player had actually just matched me, not realising he transposed oh. as well. <laughs> so you you were able to... To gaslight the uh, guitar, yeah. so we we stopped and started again. Yeah, See, that's that's a bad idea, man. Like that's a, I don't know. That could lead to chemistry issues down the road. That's no, I was right when you were wrong. Yeah, I just like to pretend like if I start playing normal, I like to just have a blank expression as if everybody who heard it, maybe they're questioning themselves. Maybe I didn't hear that. Maybe maybe nothing bad actually did happen. You know. So that's been obnoxious, but I do actually have a performance story as well. And it's shaped my whole career and approach to music. It was when I was in, I was like 17 and I was doing a recital. And uh, this was a very defining moment for me where I had to play Claire de Lune um, at, a, at this recital and I practiced the hell out of it, but I was nervous, but I was, I still practiced the hell out of it. And I didn't have a grand piano. I went to my friends in high school and he had grand piano and I practiced it there. So I practiced it a ton and I did it for, um, I played it for, it was for my, like, they call it certificate of merit is it's like the exam. Um, the graded exams kind of that you go through as a, as a musician. And so I did it and I did great, uh, on my certificate of merit. And they said, okay, we wanted you to come back and do like the kind of the best of the best recital concert. And so I practiced the hell out of it again, but I was so nervous that uh, I go to play Claire de Lune and I started. But then, of course, in the middle, I don't know where it happened, but I went off the rails <clears throat> and I had this moment where, like, 
I was shaking so bad uh, from nerves um, the whole time, but I had held it together. But then very quickly, eventually I didn't hold it together and I was in a whole nother universe mentally. And it was like this humiliating thing. And I had to like borrow from my knowledge of improvisation to kind of like somewhat land the song in the right key or something. I don't know how I did it, but it was like clear, humiliating meltdown. And uh, I remember how that nervous energy, I couldn't control my fingers. It was so much, uh, not to the point of blacking out, but I kind of, I couldn't, I had no neurological real control to, to settle in with, with, uh, I, I had panicked like big time panicked, you know? So I learned something about myself that day. And, uh, that's that I'm not cut out to be a professional classical musician. <laughs> and I love classical music. Like it kind of is my first love. I love jazz a lot, but I love classical music. And, uh, I've realized that day. It's like, that's not who I am. I'm not cut out to be. And then I would see people playing concertos and think, I, how could they ever, how could they ever do it? You know? And it's so strange because there's loads of tunes that I play in my band that I have memorized. I have lots of really complicated things memorized, but it's something about playing with your friends where they have your back and uh, you make one mistake and then it's not as big a deal. And you, the whole band can absorb it and you just keep moving. That is to totally different for me and doable. But if I had to sit and play some classical pieces from, memory uh even though i love it and i practice classical music all the time and my aspiration when i retire is to be like dave ferris on the forum he's he's got like the the life that looks amazing he's like i practice chopin a couple hours a day on my steinway d and uh get a bit of exercise and then i work on jazz that sounds great i love playing that music but i could never perform it for people outside of a casual setting have some friends over and play it for them. Maybe yeah, I could do that with the music in front of me. Yeah. Uh, so that was, I've never, I haven't had a, as terrifying a experience since, you know, that's a great, that's a great example of a, 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 a an issue performance issue that's guided your career and been a great learning experience. I think that's excellent. Um, now, speak, speaking of careers in music, we also ask our guests to to tag another keyboard player they'd love to hear um, spoken with on the the podcast. Anyone that stands out to you that you'd love to hear more from? Oh, have you had Jim on? Uh, so Jim, Jim and I have toot and froed a few times. As you know, Jim is a very, very busy man. So for our yeah. listeners, this is Jim Alfredson who plays in about 90 bands. I'm not exaggerating yeah. that much. So, yes, yeah. one day it will happen, I'm sure. Okay, Jim's great. Um, outside of our circle, there's so many people with interesting stories. You just got to find what's interesting about them, you know, and but let them tell their story. Um, maybe uh, there's a guy named Ricky Pajot. He's a uh, yes. He was, you know, who he is. He he plays keys for. He's Madonna's keyboard That's player. That's right. Yeah, Ricky and I've had two. a couple of emails as well. Believe it or not, but it okay. was a while back. So yeah, he's on the list. So good pick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's cool. I've I've played uh, with him. I I know him not that well, but um, well enough to recommend him. And uh, gosh, man, in terms of keyboard players, it's amazing how few keyboard players I get to. Mm. No, that's good. With, that's you good. know. Uh, yeah, and then all of it, there's loads that I would recommend that you already know, you know, yeah. like 
people from the forum, you know. Yeah, no, great. No, that's good. Thank you. And yeah. um, uh, our other classic question, Bobby, is the Desert Island Disc. So five albums that have heavily influenced your life. Okay. So they may not be my Desert Island, but they are definitely five albums that I would say were very formative to me. Um, okay. I'm glad that uh, you you told me about this ahead of time. So I had a bit of time to think about it. And I thought it would take me loads of time, but it was actually quite easy for me to scratch out five. Uh, okay. So uh, in jazz, there's loads, but I would go with Miles Smiles, which is a Miles Davis album from, you know, it's the second great quintet. Um, it's mid sixties. Um, and that's not because it's the best of those albums. It's because it's the first one that I bought. I was like 16 or 17 and, uh, I went to tower records and I thought, you know, Miles Davis is good. They say, and, uh, I should like uh, get an album. And then I, I would look at the back and say, Oh, Herbie Hancock's cool. Yeah. I'll get the miles album with Herbie on it. And I got that one. It happened to be the one that, <laughs> that I got. And, uh, I listened to it and I, I was associated with many memories. I think it was a rainy day that day. And so I'm driving back from the mall in my car and it's raining. And uh, I remember how perfectly Miles's muted trumpet on um, a song, song um, Circles, I think, is the ballad on there. And I remember listening to that and it was raining. I was like, this is perfect. And hearing harmonically what's going on and the approach that Herbie used on that album, which is unlike, it's not, it was really unique in that album. If you listen to Herbie's solos, it's a lot of no, no left hand. He's playing a lot of just right hand and it's around the middle. It's around middle C and the octave below middle C and an octave or so above it. But there it's a bit lower than you'd normally play as a jazz piano. If you were comping with your left hand, so it's a it's a unique sound. And I heard later that read that Miles told him to do that. Hey man, just leave your left hand out, play that. So and there's some sophisticated ass things going on in that album. And what a cool diving off point for a piano player, a young pianist into Miles Davis. That and then of course kind of blue, which I'm not putting on this list, but uh I don't know which I got first. I think Miles was Smiles was the very first one. And I remember I took it up to that music store I worked at, and all of the musicians were like, damn, you picked a really good album. That was a good one to pick. Uh, as your first foray into miles. So that that's a special one for me. All the all of the tunes on there and the playing. And of course, Footprints is on there. That's probably the most famous song on that album. Uh, but oh, Freedom Jazz Dance as well. So just some incredible playing playing on that album. Holds a special place in my heart. Uh, let's see. Uh, around the same time, um, this will resonate with you guys in Australia. Uh, the movie Shine came out in 1996. So the soundtrack to that movie changed my life and uh, the soundtrack to that movie, I would say, just because of the collection of songs that are on it. It's really the songs that he plays in that uh, in that movie that um, all became instant classics to me. And I was like a semi-serious piano player at the time. Uh, that movie really made me think, oh, my God, like I didn't know what a piano concerto was. And then he's playing Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto. And it's like, damn, how cool. And then he's playing that Chopin Polonaise to start the whole thing where he's a kid. The movie starts off where he's, you know, seven in this local talent show. And he plays that badass Polonaise on that out of tune piano. He's playing it so hard that the piano starts scooting and he has to scoot his bench towards the piano. And that piece, I was ever since then, I've like, 
I've loved that that piece of music, you know. Yeah, David, and there's David so- Hirschfeld is a monster player. He did a great job, let alone curating what what, what went into the soundtrack. Yes, yes. And uh, just the whole idea of a kid being able to play that piece. I had never even, I couldn't even fathom at the time repertoire that complicated. I didn't know much about classical, I know a bit about classical composers, but I was not that familiar with their works. It's not like you just pull them up on Spotify. It was going through. And so that led to me going, it's, it was a springboard for lots of stuff. I would go to the library and get CDs of these loads of cds of all of the music from by these composers i would get the music out at the library and try and play it be like jesus i can't play these nocturnes like let alone these polonaises at the time you know so that it was so formative for me that album so the music from that album was just it it meant so much to me uh headhunters by herbie hancock um it was actually the first version of Watermelon Man that I heard. It was not the Watermelon Man from his first album, Taken Off, but the Watermelon Man on Headhunters. Um, it was just in high school when I got that that album. And again, I think I just got lucky picking that album. Maybe I thought the cover was cool, but God, I, there's nothing I need to say about that album. It's like a masterpiece. Herbie's funky, funky playing. The bits, the clav, the roads, the voicings, the sound of the drums, the strings, the string machine. Uh, I love all of those ingredients and the way they came together. And that's a big out. Al- that's a big influence on Cali Native, my album that I talked about. There's a song on Cali Native that's like dedicated to that the sound of headhunters, basically. The last tune on their record is called Watermelon Samples. So Watermelon Man. <laughs> that's the Herbie part samples being Joe sample. Uh, so there's a bit of jazz crusaders in it as well. Cause it's cause on my tune, I wrote it for uh trombone and tenor sax and that's the jazz crusader sound. But I always, that, that mix of ingredients, that funky 70s sound, there's bass clarinet. Um, but then, so it's ethereal, there's orchestration, but then it's just badass Herbie Hancock at the center of it all. And it's funky. So I am so fortunate that I got to listen to that album when I was in high school, you know? Um, and then uh, let's see, that's, is that three or that's four? Three, that's yeah. three. Okay. Um, Toto four. Uh, it's just like a masterpiece. Um, you know what, you know, to be actually, if I was being tr- truly honest, I would say the Toto album that I bought that best of Toto album that I bought even more than that, Total four. That was an obscure, this best of total album. That was an obscure one. I, they didn't even pull up when I put it in my iTunes at the time. It was just issued, I think, in, in Australia or in New Zealand where I bought it. But it had like all of the best songs from Toto Four and then bits from, you know, um, Toto, uh, the seventh one, which is another really good Toto album um, with Joseph Williams. And just that, this basically a Toto's greatest hits. And so that is a desert island disc for me. Um, all of those tunes. Um, formed so much about what I love about music, man. I mean, it, I could talk about Toto forever, but we already know what makes him great. I really enjoyed your Steve Picaro interview. <laughs> it was, I just listened to it recently, like I said, and what a thrill to be able to just talk to that guy. <laughs> and, he's, and he's such a nasty character too. He's very rude yeah. and grumpy. And no, I mean, he's, he's one of the most approach, <laughs> approach, approachable, lovely blokes you'd meet. Yeah. Yeah. It was so yeah. much fun. Yeah. yeah. It's like a living legend, you know, and, and, there's so much you could you can talk big big picture stuff that you'd want to ask him, but then very small picture stuff. 
but then he's just volunteering these tidbits that you've never heard anywhere else. And you're like, holy crap, I can't believe he's just talking about this, you know? Uh, it's, it's really cool. So, yeah, man, everything about Toto is this is a huge influence on me. And then also what I'd said earlier about them being the studio guys, you know, being able to unleash like any he, he can Picaro can play drums on, you know, uh, freaking a disco album and then he can go play on a rock album and then and do the perfect thing at the perfect time. I really wanted to cultivate that in my own playing. So, yeah. And then also that album just sounds amazing, man. You spend your whole life just, you know, sonically just basking in it. It's one of those albums you can put on if I'm driving back from a uh, a long gig or a crappy gig or something, or just it's a long night drive, maybe L.A. to San Diego after a after a hit in L.A. and it's like it's late. I'm getting tired. You can put that on, and sometimes you'll just really get that. It's like an injection of it's like a drug almost. Like oh, I'm feeling this, and you're you're drumming and swimming inside the music you know and, and enjoying every aspect of it from the playing to the to the way it sounds um yeah so that's a that's a big one and then the fifth one it was tricky for me because there's loads of different albums and i thought about being like interesting and picking something the more recent um because there's a bit of time when i got really into like electronica and dubstep and stuff but I have to be honest, like I love the way a lot of that modern, those modern records sound. But when it's talking about a formative album for my playing, I ended up, this is kind of a strange one to say, but the Michael McDonald album, uh, it's called if, if that's what it takes, the, his first solo album. Yeah. I know the one uh, you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's got, it's got, I keep forgetting on it. Um, and, uh, those other tunes. Okay. So that album, I, it was around the same time I discovered Toto and it was, uh, so loads of the Toto guys are on it, right? Jeff Picaro. If I keep on, I keep forgetting it's Jeff Picaro playing drums and, uh, Phil and Gaines and then Steve Lukather is on a bunch of it and listening to what Greg Phil and Gaines played on keys on all of this stuff. Um, was like, I was listening to somebody play the perfect parts with perfect timing. And I, it was a real feast, but then also there was bits in the album where he was able to like, it wasn't just like the same thing over and over. Like he could comp a bit and play a really interesting blues tinged fill, or this really interesting pop fill, like a perfect Hornsby esque, like just perfect two and a half beat fill, you know? And so I did a lot of digging on that album and, and copying and note for note, like there's a lot of things that he does there that, the, it's the DNA of my playing just because of when I listen to it in my time in, in, in my career as a player on my development, like it's his playing on that album is woven into the way I play, you know? So it's very formative for me, even though it's amazing that album, it's very like, it wasn't mastered that great. It's like you, if you put it on, you have to crank up the volume way more. And I think that since then, this is like, I think they've since reissued a lot of these albums that, um, they didn't have as much maybe bass or just they weren't as loud straight that album was just not as loud you have to crank it up i think they've reissued them a lot of them where they're much louder now so you don't end up having to just max it out i would have to crank that thing up like as far as i could to hear it but despite that killer album yeah awesome um well, th thank you so much uh five five great uh choices there which we'll link to in our show notes now as a as our uh our final a uh, final stanza to this what's been a wonderful time talking to you bobby we have our quick fire 10 so this is oh, 10 
10 questions that David and I are going to fire at you. Uh, oh, my God. Quick questions, quick answers. Uh, let's see how we go. First one coming up right now, mono or stereo? Oh. Stereo if you do it right. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's that's a good it's a good response. I can elaborate, but you no, know. that's okay. No, quick fire. No, that's good. Um yeah. sitting or standing when playing. Damn, dude. It depends on the situation. <laughs> sitting is way more comfortable. Depends. I would say time. sitting. Yeah, okay. I've stood for a lot of gigs, but I think you play better when you're sitting down. The technique is way better when you're sitting. So I'd say sitting. Yeah, very but, cool. yeah. <laughs> Sometimes standing's cool. Visual energy is standing is cool, you know. I don't know. If you can do both, you can do both, you know. But who has a rig? I want a rig that raises up and goes down and stuff, but I don't. So it's funny because I've just I, I know it's rapid fire, but I, I've just transitioned to sitting down on a lot more of my top 40 gigs. I used to stand all the time and put loads of visual energy out. But watching myself on videos, it's funny. Sometimes if you don't have the right kind of visual energy as a performer, you can actually detract from what's going on. Even if you think you're moving around loads, it has to match the spirit of the tune mm -hmm. and it has to match what your real front people, your singers are doing. So you can actually work against them if you are you look like a basket case over on the side. And there's certain songs where you have to like, if a certain BPM, you have to decide, okay, am I going to dance half time to this or double time? There's a lot that goes into that. And I've studied quite a bit watching myself, but then I've also noticed like, there's people who sit down who put out loads of visual energy by sitting down. And there's something that's like stoic about having your center, your visual center be down. Like David Page looks badass sitting down at the piano, you know, but Steve Ricard looks badass standing at it. Mm. So it depends on the situation. I said it depends, but if sitting is certainly more comfortable and you can, your energy level, like night after night, you'll save yourself a bit as you get older. Perfect. Thank you so much. I agree with you on the technique too. I think it's a lot easier to play sitting, although I don't do it. Hundred percent. Yeah. Keytars, sexy or an abomination? <laughs> uh, yeah. It depends on the person doing it. I've never, I've never tried, and I don't think I can pull it off. But it depends, man. But I say if you're probably not, you know, if, if you're on the fence, then don't do it. But there's some people who can do a really good job. I used to think they were lame. They came back. I don't think it looks cool when Chick or Herbie does it. Um, but her Chick can sure play the hell out of it. But, uh, man, this Justin Timberlake concert that they did uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago probably now, was Kevin Antunes. They had, like, four dudes dancing with the keytards, including Justin. That looked so badass. So I think if you're intentional with it, it can be cool. But I've never tried, and I'm afraid I'm going to look like a dork. So, yeah, so no for me. Yeah, no, yeah. agreed. Um, transpose button or adjust on the fly, and, and, and you can't count the fact that your keyboard does it for you now. When you turn it <laughs> uh, transpose button, no problem. I can play anything in any key. I can read loads of things, but uh, sometimes it's just easier. We just had a thread on this. It was uh, Steve Ray Vaughan's keyboard player, right? Do you remember this was on the forum recently? Mm. That guy was using a transpose button. Mm. Billy Joel uses one. Um, yeah. You're not using it because you're a weak musician. You're using it because there's a tactile sense to playing in certain keys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah. like if you're trying to play in Stevie Wonder keys, um, if you're E flat minor, um, 
Uh, what's that tune? You can't. You haven't done nothing wrong. You can't do. There's the one Stevie Wonder tune that starts with this black key glyphs on the clap. Use your transpose button. Singers, guitar players who are going to play it in E minor and not E flat minor. What are you supposed to play? It's impossible. You've got to use your transpose button. There's good reasons to use a transpose button. Sometimes it's about conserving mental energy as well. There's nothing wrong with that. Very cool. Yep. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Favorite song that you've written? I don't have a favorite. I like a lot of those out. I like a lot of those. And it's not, it's not that I, it's not all the notes that I wrote. It's the way the musicians interpreted them. Hmm. You know, it's like, man, I like listening to the way the drummer played it, you know, or I like this guitar player, which I did not write that guitar part. I gave him a lead sheet and he came up with a badass guitar part. So that's my song, but he created the part. But I like listening to my album and hearing what my all my friends did. Um, but, you know, I guess and I've written loads of different tunes and different styles, man. So it's hard to say. I've written commercial things for film and TV. Um, I've written I've done arrangements that I'm super proud of. Um, but let's just I'll keep it simple. All right. I'll, I'll pick one for my album. And I would say just based on the tune, I'm really proud of the first song on that album solely based on the actual melody like if you took the, a real book chart of that tune it's a cool tune in my opinion it's like damn if you could you reduce it beyond the performance of what happened on the actual album with the playing you could just take that act the actual song write the melody write the chords uh that song stands on its own. Somebody gave me a really good compliment. One of the trumpet players on my CD release, he said, man, that's like, sounds like it's straight out of the real book. It's a, and a few different people have told me that. And I've taken it as a good compliment that it's a really cool composition in the jazz tradition that has enough interesting stuff happening that it's not derivative. It's a cool tune. Yeah. So yes, there you go. Good that pick. song is called Master of Whispers. Good pick. I, even though I think right. you're lying to yourself, I think your favorite is playing free bit on the organ at the baseball, but we'll go with it. So that's fine. I didn't write it. I don't get the royalties. No, no, from... That's true. Yeah. Well, we don't know you didn't write it. We'll, we'll choose to believe you did. That's right. um, it was my dad. Yeah. Last gig you attended as an audience member. I'll tell. Well, I'll tell you this. I did go see a symphony. I've got friends who play in the San Diego Symphony, and we have this very cool situation here where. Um, we have this gorgeous new venue downtown on the water. It's called the Rady Shell. It's a giant outdoor venue, like a Hollywood Bowl. And you can walk up to it during the day and listen to them rehearse. This past week, I took my kids and um, we actually weren't going to listen because I didn't think it was a rehearsal day. It's just a cool place to walk. But sure enough, I, we get out, I open my car door and I'm hearing Beethoven's Fifth. It was so cool. And I'm like, oh man, got the stroller out, wheeled my kids up to the front and I'm sitting there or standing there looking up, peering above and looking at these musicians. They're Raphael Payar conducting. They're shedding parts of Beethoven's fifth. And uh, so that was that was me watching something. I was not attending a concert, um, but that was incredible. Uh, oh, OK. So I went on. It was a week ago. It was last Monday. Uh, a friend of mine had a big band concert and uh, it was his first one. He's a singer. He's a fabulous, he's a bit more of a like lounge singer, um, but he's very talented, this guy. And he put, he has a big band he put together. And uh, my friend, Mike, our drummer from my top 40 band, his name is Mike Holguin. And he's an incredible musician. He's one of the best reading drummers I've ever met. 
And he subs with the symphony sometimes, but he's an incredible, he can read anything. And so he was subbing on the gig because the other guy got COVID. So he's, Mike got to, had to go play the show cold. They didn't really rehearse, but he had the charts. And so I went to support Mike and to support my friend Don, who was singing. So yes, I bought a ticket to that and I okay. went and watched the first half. I have to leave at halftime because I had to come home and deal with my kids. But it was a big deal for me to get out the door. It takes so much time to just go. The amount of energy you have to muster as a musician to go see someone else's concert. For me, it's it's especially with kids, it's almost insurmountable. Sadly, that's that's actually one of the toughest questions uh, I guess have had to answer. To be honest, so you're not you're not alone yeah. there, Bobby, for sure. What's the best thing about live gigs as a performer? There's lots of things that are that are great, but uh, if you can in- make somebody have a nice time, that's a, a very simple sense. Ma- enhancing somebody else's experience with something that's unique to you your expertise you can feel like a bit of a superhero like uh it's like man i can do something that not everybody can and what i'm doing here everyone else is liking it's like that simple if you can do that that's maybe the best thing yeah you know right that's really what it boils down to no good answer and worst thing about live gigs load out <laughs> yes. load in and load out this is the worst yeah it sucks um i hate load out so much uh, load in is not fun either, but load in's better than load out because load in you've got uh, anticipation, maybe a bit of a meal to look forward to, <laughs> and uh, there's that electricity of it, you know what's going to happen here. And um, but load out, even though you've already done your work, every second that you go slow at load out is a second you're missing from being home or being somewhere else. So you're you have to find the balance of not breaking down so fast that you look like a jackass and hurt yourself, but not taking too long. It could take me 45 minutes to load out if I took my sweet time, but I can load out in eight minutes if I need to. Mm. But either way, it's like, what am I doing here? I want to be home. Mm. So load out is just, it sucks. I wish I had people who would do it for me. I wish I was on that level. (laughs) Maybe one day. What's one thing you'd like to see invented that would make your life easier as a keyboard player? That's a cool question, man. And I've thought of a few things over the year, but nothing's coming to mind right now. Right, robot roadies. I can think of a few. Um, it's the same pedal that doesn't break. <laughs> um, they all break. They all have. They all break sometime. Mm-hmm. So it would be nice if they didn't. Robot roadies would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, or a keyboard that senses the key the band's playing and says, "Are you sure you want that transpose button on?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, it's funny. I thought of that. Like eventually. I, I had that I had that thought the other day of like AI would eventually make it so it's like it will ask you like are you sure you want that you know that key <laughs> um, man we have so much things that make our lives so much easier now that it's hard to think but have they have they come out with the perfect board no there will never be the perfect keyboard is there there's always a compromise I love my Yamaha rig it for what I'm able to do with it but it's still like limited. Um, I wish that there was a really robust way to have computers on stage. I think there probably is. I always find one reason I've resisted having a computer on stage is because my singer who's two feet away could just elbow my whole rig and I'm done. I'm toast. And so there's 10,000 little dongles and things hanging off. It would be cool if there's a slicker way. Now I know that there is like, there's guys on the forum who like, Hey, I've got it all in a rack and it's all like rock solid. I don't have that yet. Um, but 
I don't know. I feel like the technology doesn't limit. I'm my own limit, not the technology. Yeah, you know? that's a good answer, actually. Yeah. Yeah, you know. So maybe a self-tuning piano would be nice. I don't know. Maybe some cheaper hammers. My, I have a great acoustic piano, but I would like it to... Like the hammer, it's an expensive mechanical yeah. beast. That's right. So, no, I don't know. But that's good. Just now, you know, I don't know. And then sort of that, maybe the next big thing, you know, it seems like we're all recycling the same sounds now. Maybe it's time for something new. I don't know yeah. what that would be. I, I'm, I'm still... hoping for a reboot of the Yamaha Electones myself, but we'll, we'll wait and see. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, the, 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 the last one, Bobby, on that one. Yeah. Um, the last one is favorite non-musical activity or hobby. What do you do to to wind down after all the music stuff? Uh, I've got my family, which I love, and they take all my time. I've got a one and a three-year-old. And so that's my life every minute. Uh, but besides that, um, being in my garden, my my yard, it's um, something that's always, I guess, been with me. My grandparents had like a, were farmers and things like that, but uh uh, my mom was raised, you know, like growing veggies in her back garden, which was much more common than it is now. Back then it was. But uh, uh, we live in California and uh, I happen to have married into a family. My wife's father owns the biggest native plant, California native plant nursery in the state, I think. I think I could be wrong. He's he's very much a very big person in the California native plant scene. And uh, so it's kind of confusing, especially... Australians may not know. Well, actually, take it back. You guys live in a Mediterranean climate, just like we do. Um, so the type of vegetation that we have, um, you'll see loads of the wrong kinds of things planted in California. Um, palm trees. We only have one species of native palm, but you'll see loads of these non-native palms. Very thirsty plants. We shouldn't have water-intensive plants here. We have a huge water crisis in California. My yard is all California native plants, and um, they're beautiful. It's not like dry brown you know tumbleweeds it's not a desert so anyway my big passion is working on my yard um and i'm excited because our winter our fall and our winter is approaching here and that's the season when uh you get to get out in the yard and plant new things it's the opposite of the way it works in other climates where it's like though the spring is when you do your planting this and that and then winter is like cold and there's nothing everything's dead it's the opposite here winter is when we get our rain and that's when everything comes alive after their brutal summer it's summer everything's dormant so in the fall and in the winter i'm at my happiest because it's less hot and i get to be outside um tending my native garden and planting right. new things. And yeah put on a good podcast and 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 spend all day in the yard like under a cool sky that is heaven for me that's good and hopefully you get the rain because um we certainly had it down here. We've had um, where I am nearly 2.6 metres of rain in the past six months. What? Yeah. So anyway, we won't, we won't go on like, oh, I better talk about the weather, but I'm not joking. So it's 2,600 mils. So I don't know what that is in inches, but it's a lot. Well, that's like you're you're talking about six feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've had two metres of rain is six feet of, of rain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Usually get we get about ten inches if like if a lower than ten inches makes you a desert we'll get ten to twelve. That's right. But we're having a tough time. We've had three El Nino or El Nino winters in a row, which means that we and don't that's, get. And that's rain. why we've got all the rain. We've got. And that's why you've got all the rain. Yeah. And so they're saying it's not going to switch again this year. And so the, the wildfires get more and more out of control. Okay. I know this is not a planting podcast, but yeah, we could use some rain we around cover here. Everything we cover everything. <laughs> 
Bobby, it yes. has been a wide-ranging discussion, and for that we thank you. It's been absolutely brilliant across the two parts of the show. We've really enjoyed it immensely, and you've shown just what a diverse play you are, and um, can't thank you enough. It was so fun. I to get to talk about it. There's a nerd out and then realize, oh, I'm talking. Am I going too long about this? Oh, wait, no, this is what they want me to talk about. Well, there you go, Paul. That was uh, one wide-ranging discussion um, that I got a huge amount of value out of. Oh, man, that was such fun. Uh, you know, and Bobby, now listeners, viewers, you've, you've heard him. He's a, a really, really interesting guy, so, so generous with his thoughts, as, as all our guests have been. And you know, there's a real passion around, around what he does. And that's, that's probably the key thing I took out of our two parts talking to Bobby was he really gives all of himself to what he does. He's thinking about how can I make mm. this better? How can I make it fun? How can I make a great experience for my, for my audience, whomever that may be? And I think we can all take a fair bit out of that for, for our own selves yeah. as, as performers. But yeah, I, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Learned a lot too. Yeah, absolutely. And now I'm desperate to watch a baseball game. So, and um, let alone see one of his other great gigs. So yeah, no, it was really, really uh, valuable. Thank you, Bobby. You hugely appreciate your time. So a quick shout out to our gold and silver supporters, as always, the Core Chrome user group. Thank you, Greg, on Facebook. So if you're on Facebook, definitely um, check that out if you're a Core Chrome user. Uh, Brother Paul Brown from the wonderful Water Boys. Um, Brother Paul Brown is still out and about and playing all sorts of gigs, not just with the Water Boys, but we hugely thank him for his ongoing support, as do we Tammy Catcher of Tammy's Musical Stew, uh, another great um, show out of Canada, and she's a huge supporter. And I should mention, I've neglected to do it so far, is um, as part of Pimp Our Band T-shirts, we have another Canadian band, says David, making sure the camera picks up his T-shirt, Shagwar. Look at that. Shaguar. What what do you think a Shaguar is, David? I don't know. Being a a parent-friendly podcast, I'm not sure I want to get into that, (laughs) particularly from an Australian perspective. And I'm not saying that that's what their intention is, but I just I assume it's a bit like um, Shagadelic Baby, Austin Powers, with with a Jaguar thrown in. I thought it might be something to do with carpet. Like a shag pole. Oh, it could be that too. Good point. See, it's my dirty mind. I apologise. Yeah, I don't know what you were thinking about. <laughs> so, um, yeah, for our Aussie listeners, and I think, well, our UK listeners will understand what I'm getting at. Um, so, yes, um, appreciate um, you sending over the shirt, Tammy and Shaguar, and we'll be linking to you guys in the show notes as well. So, um We'll be back again in a fortnight or so, but just a reminder, you can keep in touch via a few means, www.keyboardchronicles.com. Just another quick reminder, we have a lovely range of about 90 pieces now of merchandise, wall art, T-shirts, you name it. You want a shower curtain with a keyboard motif on it and something different? Oh, we're your people, you know, and we'll even throw in a set of steak knives, except that's one thing we don't have. Who, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't uh, want a keyboard shower curtain? I know. Well, if I didn't have a fixed shower, like glass thing, I'd totally be buying one. But sadly, I can't put a curtain over what's already there. My wife would kill me. 
Um, <laughs> so we're on Facebook at facebook.com, Keyboard Chronicles, Twitter at the keyboard CHR1, number one. If you like good old-fashioned email, we'd love to hear from you at editor at keyboardchronicles.com. Last shout-out for Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Keyboard Chronicles. Really appreciate the people, as I've already mentioned uh, at the end of the show, who do support us in that way. Paul, couldn't have done it without you, sir, as always. David, it's been a pleasure as always. I've had a really great time once again with you chatting to Bobby. And uh, most importantly, thanks you all out there for listening and we will definitely see you back in a couple of weeks. Yeah.